When you're strapped in a car next to a new driver, what is the absolutely most terrifying part of that? And I mean like a new driver, not someone who's had dozens of hours behind the wheel. I'm saying the first time. I would argue that uh, the, the, the most scary part and the most uh, significant error is one of overcorrection. They're going a little bit to the right and they swerve back and suddenly you're in the left lane um, driving at oncoming traffic. Um, and there's a certain touch to the brake and the gas and you might really um, zoom when you uh, leave us from a starting uh, from a stop position and as you stop they may not tap the brakes you might find yourself coming to a very very hasty halt I think overcorrection can be a common error in all of life. It's easy to overcorrect. I'm sure we can think of organizations that have overcorrected. You may have at work had seen an error. Um, you know, recently uh, there was an issue with um, black market vape pens. Do you know what vaping is? Smokeless, uh, not smokeless tobacco, that's chewing tobacco. But there's, there's been an issue with like black market vaping. And so the, the, the overcorrection that we're doing is to, is to regulate or to ban vaping which would in fact probably lead people to that black market stuff that actually got us in trouble. So overcorrection is a common issue in life, is it not? Back in the Reformation period, the church was in trouble. Um, superstition was rampant. The church, rather than being a place of peace and comfort, was a place of tremendous anxiety. And many things emerged from this Reformation, but one of the lasting nuggets that was rediscovered was the doctrine of justification by faith that God justifies the ungodly, that God um, meets us where we are and declares us righteous, um, that it is not, in fact, our works that um, are something that makes us uh, delightful to God, but, in fact, we come to God as sinners, and God, in his freedom, um, justifies the ungodly. God adopts us as, our, as his own, not because we're really good, but because he's really, really good. And um, this is one of these nuggets that emerged from that, era, uh, from that era, but as time progressed, uh, we kind of overcorrected in that direction. Um, there are Christians today who think that the only important thing is their faith in Jesus. There are people who would argue that baptism is, in fact, unnecessary. Uh, I, and I was... Googling, and I, I don't want to present every wacky uh, website because um, I don't know how prevalent um, these beliefs are, but the first sign last night that I was running into um, something that was, uh, it was, is a, I found a website that was called truthortradition.com. That's kind of a false dichotomy, right? There's either truth and then there's tradition, assuming that all tradition is, is, is false. Um, but it was on this site that it was funny. It was like, we're not saying baptism is a sin, but that's not, a, that's not a way you want to start the sentence. Um, uh, you know that you're probably into some bad theology when you're saying things like that. But there are people who, in fact, believe that baptism is superfluous, that it's unnecessary because all we need is our faith in Jesus Christ. This is not true. Um, I hope to answer, uh, okay, uh, so these people would argue, they would say, I am saved by grace through faith. What do I need water baptism for? I hope to answer that question today. We are in our second week of a sermon series on the five S's, which are our values as a diocese. 
Our diocese is this broad movement of churches that are led by a bishop, uh, Bishop Stuart Ruck, and our diocese has articulated five values that really make us tick. And all these five values come from Acts 2.42 through 47, which is why if, if the, the reading from Acts looked familiar today, that's why. Uh, it's because that's going to be a, a text that we're going to use for a few weeks now. Um, and these values are as follows. We seek to be fully scriptural. Five S's, scriptural. Second S, we seek to be fully sacramental. The third S is we seek to be full of the Spirit. The fourth S is uh, we are free to sacrifice our lives for others. And the fifth S is that we are focused on the salvation of others. Scripture, sacrament, spirit, sacrifice, salvation. Today I'll, I'll preach on just one aspect of being fully sacramental, and that, that is the aspect of baptism of baptism in water. Next week, we will um, focus on Holy Communion. To be sacramental is, to, is a general affirmation that matter matters, that, that the physical stuff matters a great deal. God created the world and he called it good. Our goal isn't to die so that someday we get to be released from this, we can shuffle off this mortal coil and get to be a ghost and live with God. Um, that's, not our, that's not our goal. We don't look forward to death so that we can become spirit and be, be with God. The Bible and the historical creeds affirm the resurrection of the flesh or the resurrection of the body. That our flesh will be revived and we, have, we will have a physical existence. We'll have gardens and we'll have food and we'll have drink. Instead of looking forward to the day when we get to be a spirit and get to meet Jesus, we should be looking forward to the day when we get to have a beer with Jesus. That is what we look forward to. God created the earth and he called it good. And God affirmed that it was good and that he chose to be born as a person. as a humble person that he took on flesh and was born as one of us in a lowly manger and there's beauty and there's dignity in our humanity and all of its physicalness. In B.O. and in bad breath, there is, there is beauty in physicality. Physical and the spiritual world are actually intertwined. And God uses physical means to work. God, throughout history in the Bible, he doesn't just wave a, a spiritual imaginary hand and let things uh, be done. In fact, he uses people. He uses armies. He uses uh, all sorts of physical means. And, and Jesus, uh, in his ministry, used physical means. There are two examples of miracles he performed where he used his saliva. There is one where he spit on his fingers and put them in the ears of a, of a dead man. And, and um, and I don't know if he actually spit in his mouth. There's a, 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 it says in the book of Mark, uh, it says Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and he spits and touches a man's tongue. So it's not clear if he just, you know, spit or if like he li literally spit in the man's mouth. I don't, it's not clear in the text. But Jesus uses like this physicality. Isn't that wild? And in an older um, baptismal rites, um, not only would the priest breathe on a baby, but the priest would actually use saliva in some, in some aspects. Um, and that's something that's kind of disappeared. And in the book of John, we have the man who's born blind, where Jesus spits in the, and he makes mud with spit and dirt. And he puts that in the man's eyes. This is physicality. God uses physical means. 
And he left us with two sacraments that he ordained. So um, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments. We recognize two. We recognize those other things. We don't call them sacraments because there are two that the Lord ordained, that Jesus said, um, do these things. Jesus said, um, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper um, on, on um, the night before he died. So I suppose I've been using the word sacrament without defining it. A sacrament is an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Outward and spiritual sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Um, there are lots of signs. There are literal signs. Um, a stop sign indicates you're supposed to stop. My wedding ring indicates something more than just the fact that I have something of value on my finger, but in fact um, represents my uh, my promise um, to my wife uh, before God and men. With these outward and physical signs of, of, these sacraments are outward and physical signs of God working invisibly in us. So here's what I want to do with this sermon today. If you are a baptized person, I want you to relish this. I want you to be comforted by this. I want you to celebrate this. Because in your baptism, you have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You have union with God. You belong to him. You have been marked as Christ's own forever. Amen. If you are not baptized, I want you to hunger and thirst for it. I want you to be like the Kool-Aid man, like crashing through walls saying, please baptize me, please. I want you to beg your parents or beg me to become baptized so that you can become a child of God. If you're skeptical, skeptical about our teaching on baptism, I want you to listen with an open heart and I want you to compare these teachings with scripture and with the church's understanding throughout history. If you have a question or an issue, I'd love to discuss that over lunch or a cup of coffee. You're not alone if you think that people who talk about sacraments uh, are people who trust in rituals rather than in God. You wouldn't be the first person to, to uh, think this. So I want to argue that those of us who affirm and participate in the sacraments ordained by God do, in fact, trust in Jesus. That we who put our trust in our baptism and we who run forward to receive uh, his goodness in Holy Communion, that we do put our trust in Christ. That there's not nothing in the bread and the wine, in the water itself, um, but that God is working through these means. So we could start anywhere, but let's just start with the first reading. That's found on page six in your bulletins. Like I said, this is a familiar reading because we had it last week in our bulletins, and we're going to have it next week. And th th these are the verses from which these five S's, these five values emerge so again, just like last week, to set the context, this is on the day of Pentecost uh, where this reading starts, um, that the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to his people, and uh, they went into the streets, and then Peter began to preach, and people responded. It said that they were cut to the heart. So they were preached to, and they believed, like something in their hearts was like, we believe, now tell us, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. So what, what is the appropriate response for someone who hears the word of God and believes? It's repentance, 
and baptism. Baptism isn't something superfluous or extra. The guidance, like when you are cut to the heart and you believe, it's repentance and, 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 and uh, baptism. So you might wonder, if baptism is something that we do following repentance, then why don't we wait until our children are old enough to repent and be baptized? Well, let's look at the gospel lesson from today. That is on page 9. We have people bringing their infants to Jesus, hoping that he would touch them. They recognized something in Jesus. And, and during Jesus' time, it wasn't always clear, clear that people even knew who he was or what he was doing. Although his signs, had they known their Bibles well, they would have seen the signs and they would have said, this is the Christ. And there was uh, even a, a point where Jesus said to his disciples, who do they say that I am? They're like, some say Moses and some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or, or John, John, uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he modifies the question. He says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So it's clear that, that, that um, really only his disciples understand who he is. But everyone else seemed to like, understand that this is someone of immense power. When you think about your children, you would do anything for your children. It's an amazing thing. So these are people who care for their children. They're like, there's a holy man sent by God. We don't know who he is. Maybe Moses, maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. But he, can, he has power. And he has power to bless our children. So they're bringing their children to him. Um, th- think about how you would do anything for your child. You sacrifice sleep. You sacrifice money. You sacrifice sanity. Um, there's something really, really special about cleaning up a blowout diaper. Uh, for the uninitiated, a blowout diaper is when a diaper fails to contain a bowel movement. The diaper fails and you find yourself wiping poop off the neck of your child because it has gone all the way up their back. There's something really powerful about this experience when you are hit with the realization, you're like, my parents did this for me. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your children. So these people are bringing their children to Jesus. They're like, I don't know who he is, but he can do something to bless them. And his disciples notice this, and they're like, ah, he's got bigger fish to fry than messing with these babies. It says the disciples rebuked these people for bringing their children to Jesus. And Jesus called to his disciples and said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Jesus loves children. In preparing for this sermon, I listened to our bishop preach on this very topic in a sermon titled, Baptism Ministers the Closeness of Jesus. Um, They went through a sermon series. It makes me think like, we did a little too small. They did four sermons on being fully scriptural. We did one. Um, but uh, they, uh, if you haven't heard our, our bishop preach, he is a fantastic, powerful uh, preacher. Um, I just love the way that he talks about the waters of baptism ministering to us. I love that idea. This is a word that we don't use a lot, to be ministered to. But boy, do I need to be ministered to sometimes. And God ministers to us. He cares for us. He, he, he meets our needs. And he does that through baptism. 
Contrast that with the way that the Baptists might describe baptism. The Baptists would describe baptism as an outward expression of one's inward faith. This is someone's public declaration. Contrast these, someone's public declaration versus God ministering to us through the waters of baptism and God giving us this wonderful and blessed assurance through those waters. We believe that God is at work. That is not merely a public profession, but God is at work in, those, in, in the waters of baptism. We believe this because the Bible says it. And I'll get to that in a moment. But we, we think of baptism as ministering to us, not some empty ritual. That God ministers to us through physical things and through the water of baptism. And that through those waters of baptism, when we pass through those waters, we are marked as belonging to God. That we belong. We are drawn close to him. That God ministers to us. God ministers to us in different ways. He ministers to us through people and their kindness. Sometimes it is through, he ministers to us through the claiming of us in baptism. And sometimes it's spiritually. Um, God feeds us through the sacrament of his body and his blood. And our bishop talks about the beauty of God welcoming the rational and the pre-rational and the ah-rational. So yes, we believe in, absolutely we believe in believer's baptism. If someone is an adult who has not been baptized, we believe, repent and be baptized. We also believe that the kingdom of God belongs to those people who are pre-rational. To Charles Abels, who was baptized at, at the end of last year, the kingdom of God belongs to him. And, the, and, the, and, and we believe that, uh, that the kingdom of God belongs to the ah-rational. You may know someone who has special needs and who may never be able to articulate a faith in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that there isn't a final exam at the entryway to God's kingdom. Um, that those who are special needs people, they are welcome in God's kingdom as they are marked in the waters, as they pass through the waters of baptism. God says, you do not need to perfectly understand who I am and what I've done for you to be my child. Those who are developmentally disabled are welcome in God's kingdom. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. To them belongs the kingdom of God. The arrogant, the haughty, those with advanced degrees. Does Jesus say the kingdom of God belongs to them? No. He says the kingdom of God belongs to those such as these, to children, this is why we baptize children. We don't bar the door to God's kingdom um, to, to those who are pre-rational. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to them who are, uh, to, to children, who are we to stand at the door and say, you're not allowed in. What do you say as, as words of correction to a seven-year-old who is unbaptized? Would you say, why are you behaving like this? Should it be a surprise that they're behaving as if they're not a Christian, if they aren't part of God's family? But to the baptized, we could say, this is not who you are, that Christ has claimed you and he has marked you. You belong to him. You're a new person now. Because the Bible actually teaches, um, in the, wash, teaches the washing of regeneration that those who are marked as Christ's own through the waters of baptism have been regenerated. And they're part of this kingdom. 
So we can say to, to a baptized child, the way you're behaving, that's not who you are. You're Christ's child. Christians don't believe that, don't behave this way. Let's turn to page seven so I can get really controversial. I promised uh, I'd talk more specifically about the efficacy of baptism. In Acts 2, we see Peter teaches that baptism forgives our sins, right? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we see Peter teach here in 1 Peter 3. What do we see him say in verse 20? We see him write, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So just pause here and think for a moment about the comparison that he's making. He's like, hey, remember Noah and the ark? How these great waters came and they were spared because they were in the ark. He's saying that likewise, our passing through the waters of baptism is like an ark. Just like the ark saved them, now baptism saves you. Boy, that's controversial, isn't it? Um, and, and we don't want to use this as a proof text. You know what a proof text is? When you have one small bit of scripture that's taken out of context, and we're like, see, it says this here. Um, but when we compare that uh, to other parts of scripture, we, we do see a coherence there. Not in that water apart from the Lord saves us. There's nothing in the water itself, but that God uses physical means. God works with physical means. Baptism, he says, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not on its own, but through the power of God. Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God's promise of salvation is given to us as a gift through the waters of baptism. Just as a boat saves you from a flood, baptism saves you, not because water is magic, not because we're able to put the squeeze on God and say, see, we used the water, now you've got to do your thing. We don't say, God, you promised to save those who are united with Jesus um, through the waters of baptism, so we're going to... If, if that were true in and of itself, we would buy cases upon cases of super soakers and walk down Phillips Avenue, and we would do these mass baptisms, and we'd be making Christians all over the place if, if um, the waters of baptism were efficacious apart from faith. We do not baptize babies unless there is faith present in the adults who are bringing the child forward to baptism. Faith must be present in the family. And as children grow up, parents and godparents make promises that they will teach them the faith. And in fact, we, they promise to teach them the Lord's Prayer, the Creeds, and the Ten Commandments. Those are very specific promise, promises that they have to make uh, upon baptism. And so that the child may someday grow up to claim that faith as their own. But baptism does offer us the assurance that God ministers his closeness to us through baptism. And this is why we will sing a song today, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Because we, because we are baptized, we can say that Jesus is mine, and we can say that, that we have assurance of this.
So let us go back to the Reformation for just a moment. Like I said, it was a period of anxiety for people in the church. They're like, where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with God? Are my works sufficient? The church did, did nothing to assuage these fears. And I try not to read quotes to you, but I'm going to do exactly that today uh, as, as uh, Professor Philip Carey has a really good quote. Here it is. This is what Luther was saying to anxious Catholics, which is really all of Europe. This is what Luther was saying. In the 16th century, he was saying, notice what God has already promised you in your baptism and in the Eucharist and cling to it in faith rather than turning to your own good works, even if the works of love that you are to achieve with the help of faith and grace. If you are anxious about whether you love God enough, whether you are in a state of grace rather than mortal sin, then there is good news for you. All your good works are damnable sins. Luther actually says this. So there's no point in being anxious about whether they're good enough. You have no hope of salvation unless you have been baptized into Christ who shed his blood and gave his body for you and promised himself to you in your baptism. So unless you call Christ a liar, you have no choice but to believe he is your savior. I want each of you today to feel ministered to by remembering your baptism, by remembering who you are in light of your baptism and to revel and relish the glory of being marked as Christ's own forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your promises, for the assurance that we can have that you have washed us and claimed us and united us to you in the waters of baptism, Lord. I thank you for, for the assurance we can feel at these promises and that we can be free to live for you. Lord, we pray for the strength by the power of your spirit to do that as we leave this place today. Pray us all in Christ's name. Amen. This is a recording for the Church of the Resurrection. We are an Anglican church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Our worship includes the proclamation of God's word, the regular celebration of the Holy Communion, and an expectation that the Holy Spirit is active in the church and our lives. Please join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club on 824 East 14th Street.